Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world. Ever. Ever. Q is for Queen. Okay, so uh, cards on the table to begin with here, Bobbert. Queen were the very first band that I ever saw performing live. Wow. Which is a bit of a baptism of fire, and a great one, a really great one, because I went to see Mott the Hoople, it was in November of 1973, bearing in mind I'd just missed that year... Lou Reed playing at the Palace. I'd missed Roxy Music playing at the Free Trade Hall. Right. And I missed David Bowie doing the shows at the Free Trade Hall as well uh, in the June. And so I was just about starting to get into going to gigs and I just missed what would have been probably the best gig in my life. And so that, that period is a little bit kind of a, a double-edged sword for me. Mm. But Mott the Hoople, and to be fair to my folks, I was only yeah, I was only 12 at the time. Right. And uh, me and Steve Hanley, we both bought these wire wool suits uh, to go to the gig in. So we were matching to begin with, which right. is not a good start. I mean, the irony being, I suppose, if you think nearly everybody else was matching in the venue, but they wore granddad vests and and Levi's and, yes. and desert boots quite mm. often. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> me and Steve, we look like a reject from Bugsy Malone. Oh, great. Have you got photos? Uh, no. What a shame. No, we couldn't afford cameras no, and film on. and all that, mate. But they were very itchy and we didn't have very good seats. We were right at the top of the opera house in Manchester. We weren't on the back row or anything, but it was a top tier, mm. which was, uh, again, a little bit kind of scary, but so thoroughly exciting. Wow, yeah. Now, didn't have a clue who Queen were, but of course, we got there about half six, just to make sure we were plenty of time. I would imagine that Queen probably came on around about half past seven. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, you wouldn't know if you were just easily impressed, because it's the first band you've ever mm. seen, and you think, well, everything's going to be like that. Everybody's yeah, going to sure. have a great guitarist. Everybody's going to have a really amazing frontman, but of course that wasn't the case and i was absolutely blown away by them and then mott the hoople came on it was the aerial bender years and i was a massive fan of mott the hoople and that show the mott the hoople actual gig itself was just remarkable and they did violence and threw each other around the stage Whoa, you know ian great, hunter cool. and aerial bender yeah i went away from there being a big fan of queen and then of course it all went it went off for them you know and i went to see the ensuing shows at the palace theater which was the same tour actually that they did the live at the rainbow from for ah, right. new year's oh, eve right. he had all that same clobber on which yeah. is just mind-blowing i also went to the two shows in one night at the free trade hall when bohemian rhapsody was i uh, was number one cool uh, and that's when i stopped really so it was after that not long after that that not only they became kind of a little bit 
uh, overly theatrical for my money. Yeah. And I'd also joined the fall, and so those kind of things really didn't sit too comfortably no. <laughs> alongside each other. I can and imagine, yes. So yeah. I, I kind of lost interest. What was, what was your take on Queen? You're younger than me. Bob. Well, yeah, I didn't come to Queen until... Uh, I mean, a lot of my mates at school used to listen to Queen and uh, had the live album and the rest of it. And then it was just, I suppose, you know, late 70s, early 80s when I'd start listening to the old Queen stuff, like Seven Seas Arise, which is mind-blowing stuff. It's when I mean, they became known for all that pomp and the theatrics and everything, which was like part of the show... And was part of Freddie's uh, personality, wasn't it, and persona. But, you know, people forget just how great they were, just what a great rock band they were, especially in those early years. And Brian May, I mean, there's always people joking about well, the fact that he made his guitar from a fireplace with his dad. Yeah. But what a guitar, and what a guitar oh. player. And he played it with a sixpence as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's Instead right. And, and the harmonies too, they forget about the harmonies being so great and so meticulous, you know, beautifully produced queen for a start. Yeah, so they were a game of two halves for me anyway. All right. Uh, all right, let's get to it then, Bobby. All right, okay, so we'll run through the members, shall we? So we start off with Freddie Mercury, actually born Farrakh Bulsara in what was then Zanzibar in 1946. Yeah, a bit easier this one. Brian May, born in Twickenham, 1947, <laughs> in Middlesex. John Deacon, born in Leicester. 1951. Okay. Yeah, and Roger Taylor, uh, Roger Meadows Taylor, I'll have you know, born Ooh. the 26th of July in Kings Lynn in Norfolk. So, for a bit of a recap, members of two bands composed of university and art school students combined to form Queen in London in 1971. Aided by producer Roy Thomas Baker, Queen shot up the international charts with the third album, Sheer Heart Attack, in 74. And then, of course, you got Nights at the Opera, one of pop music's most expensive productions, sold even more. It did, so the band constructed a sound that was part English music hall, part Led Zeppelin, epitomised by the mock operatic Bohemian Rhapsody, Britain's top single for nine weeks. Spectacular success followed in 1977 with We Are The Champions and We Will Rock You, which became ubiquitous anthems at sporting events in Britain and the United States and Altrincham Ice Rink, which is where I go every now and then to watch Aww. Manchester Storm, the ice hockey team, and, and inevitably, yeah, they do the We Will Rock You and... Oh, Together. Of course you do. I bet that's great. That's uh, probably one of my first experiences watching Top of the Pops, seeing them do Bo Rap on that. And I loved it because obviously I loved the tune, especially the bit in the middle where the guitar kicks in. And it'd be on, as you say, it was number one for what, nine weeks, something daft. Yeah, I mean, when I saw it played live, I seem to remember that it was a little bit kind of uh, a bit disjointed in a way. And I'm not even sure if the first part of it might have even been on tape. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. I, I, I can't quantify that, but I do remember that it was all a bit like, where's all this noise coming right, from? Where, okay. where are all these kind of a really great harmonies coming yeah. from and that? And whether they were doing it live or not, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think so. And then, of course, the other part of the song where they're just rocking out yeah. was, was, was defiantly, obviously live. But it, it'd be interesting to find out, I suppose. It just yeah. came to me then, really. Wow, OK. I just had this image of them all clustered around one mic doing mm, those harmonies. Obviously not. So, uh, as we know, they gave a stellar performance at Live Aid in 1985, which sort of reversed their commercial fortunes a bit, didn't it? Mercury sadly died of AIDS in 1991, and the band issued its final album in 95, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 2001. So, there is a right old Bowie connection here. In January 1969, the Scottish group, the Beat Stalkers, released a cover of Bowie's Little Boy Blue on CBS. Guitarist Alan Mayer, who designed their outfits, started making clothes out of a room in Ken Pitt's office. He then opened a clothing stall in Kensington Market. 
market, where Bowie became a regular customer. All right, so the stall opposite was run by uh, Farrakh Bulsara, Freddie Mercury, who also worked as Mer's sales assistant for a couple of years. It's amazing to think how famous those guys would become, both chatting on my stall, said Mer years later. Uh, in the meantime, Queen drummer Roger Taylor was in the audience at Friars in Aylesbury in September 71 when uh, Mick Ronson made his live debut with Bowie. Taylor remembered that Bowie had long hair and wore a dress. OK, so incidentally, the piano that Rick Wakeman used on Life on Mars was the same one that Freddie Mercury would use on Bohemian Rhapsody. Also, I think the same one that Beatles used on Hey Jude, wasn't That's it? exactly right, Bobbert. So when Ziggy and the Spiders played Aylesbury Friars in January 1972, their first public performance wearing the new glam costumes, Queen's Roger Taylor and Freddie Mercury were in the audience. There's that story, we might have told it before, mm. where they went over and uh, driving around a load of roundabouts, and <laughs> a bit like a carry-on film in, uh, in Taylor's Mini Cooper. <laughs> Great. Getting lost all over the show. Yeah. Uh, two weeks later, Taylor took Brian May to watch the band when they played at London's Imperial College Union. Uh, Brian May was a student there, wasn't he, at one point? Right. Afterwards, May and Taylor hung around the stage, bombarding Bowie's roadies with loads of questions about Mick Ronson's gear and looking for tips on how he achieved his guitar sound. Well, we yeah, again, Great. I mean, we know that uh, Mick Ronson, he used a Marshall setup, didn't he, with yeah. Les Paul? But he also, I mean, what really got his sound was that he had a wah-wah pedal that he didn't mess about with too much. He mm. just set it to the kind of tone that he wanted and pretty much left it yeah. there. Yeah. As I understand it. Mm. I mean, but he, they should have come and asked me. Well, Mark, I know. Yeah. Missed a trick there, definitely. Too late now. Anyway, Bowie was supposedly asked to produce Queen when they were recording their second album at Trident Studios in the January of 1973. But he turned down the offer because he had so many commitments at that point in time, the most pressing of which was the recording of A Lad Insane. EMI launched a Queen with a showcase gig at the Marquee in April 1973, whilst Bowie was busy touring Japan. I mean, that's a... That's a... Oh, that's a great thought, isn't it? Bowie producing Queen around that time, right after Iggy and Lou? Yeah, you just, but I'm not sure it would have worked. I mean, I don't know. Was it Roy Thomas Baker who did yeah, all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the production on that is remarkable and absolutely perfect for him. So yeah. maybe maybe it was best left undone. Yeah, possibly. Know. In July 73, during photo sessions for pinups in Paris, Mick Rock was told about Queen by Bowie's producer, Ken Scott. And when he went back to London, Rock sought out Queen, forming a working relationship that resulted in the, well, the iconic photo for the cover of Queen 2. Inadvertently, Bowie gave Queen a break when he pulled out of a Top of the Pops appearance in 1974 at the very last minute when he'd be due to perform Rebel Rebel and Queen were rushed in as a replacement where they performed Seven Seas of Rye. You see, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's fateful, that, isn't it? It right. is. In 1992, Bowie and Mick Ronson joined Ian Hunter and members of Queen to perform All the Young Dudes at the Freddie Mercury tribute gig at Wembley Stadium. Two years later, Hunter and others performed the same song at the Hammersmith Odeon for Mick Ronson's tribute concert. Yeah, so that brings us to Under Pressure now. So this is the 1981 single by Queen and Bowie, included on Queen's Hot Space album, and it got to number one in the UK, which is Queen's second number one after Bo Rap and Bowie's third after Ashes to Ashes and the Space Oddity. Song only got to number 29 in the States, which is a bit of a puzzle. Right, OK. Uh, Under Pressure was played live every Queen gig from 81 until the end of their touring career in 86. OK, so in July 1981, Bowie was at Mountain Studios in Montreux, Switzerland, recording Cat People putting out the fire with Giorgio Moroder. In the studio next door, Queen were busy recording Hot Space. Queen had been working on a song called Feel Like, but they weren't satisfied with the result. Davy Bowie had originally popped in to sing backup vocals on another Queen song, Cool 
Volcat. However, his vocals were removed from the final song because he wasn't happy with the performance. Ooh. Now, once Bowie arrived, they worked together for a while and wrote the song under pressure. The final version evolved from a jam session that Bowie had with the band. It was credited as being co-written by all five musicians. Brian May said later that to have Bowie's ego mixed with ours was a very volatile mixture. It made for a very hot time in the studio. Roger Taylor, meanwhile, added that we'd never actually collaborated with anybody before, so certain egos were slightly bruised along the way. And here's the thing as well, just another fact to throw in there. That I saw them, as I say, with Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople were the only band Queen ever supported right. in their career. Mm. Uh, so they weren't uh, used to playing second fiddle <laughs> no. to anybody. I mean, and uh, the confidence is remarkable, really, because you think, I mean, David Bowie, you would think that they they were, well, they were looking up to David Bowie. Yeah, of course they were, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, Freddie's ego is well documented, isn't it? Uh, the scat singing that dominates much of the song is evidence of the jam beginnings as improvisation. However, according to Queen bassist John Deacon, as quoted in the French magazine in 1984, the song's primary musical songwriter was Freddie Mercury, though all contributed to the arrangement. Well, OK, so Brian May told Mojo in October 2008, he said it was hard because he had four very precocious boys and David, who was precocious enough for all of us. David took over the song lyrically. Looking back, it's a great song, but it should have been mixed differently. Freddie and David had a fierce battle over that. It's a significant song because of David and its lyrical content. And the jury is out on this song. I absolutely love it. I love this song. Oh. oh, how could you not like this? I think it's euphoric. Yeah, I know people who think it's crap. Right, really? Uh, but wow. it gets me, that song. You know, it really does. I love it. Uh, the earlier embryonic version of the song, without Bowie, feel like, is widely available in bootleg form and was written by Queen drummer Roger Taylor. So this is a weird one. So there's been some kind of confusion about who created the song's bass line. So speaking to a Japanese magazine called Music Life in 1982, John Deacon said that Bowie created it. In more recent interviews, Brian May and Roger Taylor credited the bass line uh, to Deacon. Bowie on his website said the bass line was already written before he became involved. Well, it's a bass line written by the bass player. Well, <laughs> can do that. And, he, and he wrote uh, well, another one, Bites the Dust, as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that is a really so, iconic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger Taylor, in an interview for the BBC documentary Queen, The Days of Our Lives, said that Deacon did indeed create the bass line, adding that he'd been playing it over and over in the studio. He also claims that when the band returned from dinner, Deacon had forgotten the riff, but fortunately, Taylor was still able to remember it. Phew! God, blimey, you could write a book about this one bass line. Well, get this, right? So Brian May addressed the same issue more recently in a... Uh, online article for Mirror Online saying that it was actually Bowie, not Taylor, who had inadvertently changed the riff. The riff began, he says, as DC uh, or Deaky, began playing six notes the same, then one note, a fourth down. After the dinner break, Bowie corrected, actually changed Deacon's memory of the riff to ding, 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 diddle, ding, ding. And the rest is history. Yeah. In Is This a Real Life? The Untold Story of Queen, Mark Blake writes that a German producer at Mountain Studios at the time said nearly 24-hour session was fueled by so much blow, which is cocaine. Mm. Uh, and from Freddie Mercury, an intimate biography by Leslie Ann Jones, 2012, uh, this. There was some discussion as to which Queen song Bowie would appear on. According to Mercury, in the end, David said... This is stupid. Why don't we just write one? The result was Under Pressure, initially entitled People on Streets. It came about pure by chance. Mercury explained later... Right, OK. So the tune which was recorded in Queen's Mountain Studios uh, after Bowie had met up with the band in the Swiss Town's pub turned out to be among Queen's most challenging. The mixing desk collapsed. Bowie wanted to remake the track uh, from scratch and things came to a head. At one point, Bowie refused to allow its release but later backed down. 
Good. And you have to wonder if the mixing desk was creaking under the weight of the cocaine. Oh, Mark. Oh, Bowie said later that Under Pressure stands up better as a demo. It was done so quickly that some of it makes me cringe a bit. Really? David! Oh, come on! David, please. The video for the song features neither Queen nor Bowie due to touring commitments. Taking the theme of pressure, director David Mallet, of course, had done Ashes to Ashes, hadn't he, Uh, for Bowie, edited together stock footage of traffic jams and commuter trains and explosions and riots, etc. And also footage from silent films from the 20s, like Battleship Potemkin, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Nosferatu, which is so great. Nosferatu. I mean, I have that... Uh, Max Shrek, is it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have him as my screensaver every now and then. Do you, Mark? And in oh. fact, a mate of mine, Tony Husband, every time he calls me, my actual little image for uh, Tony Husband on my phone is Nosferatu sat oh, on the chair. really? But he doesn't know that, <laughs> so if he doesn't listen to this podcast, then he'll never know. Oh, no offence, Tony. Moving on, Top of the Pops refused to show the video due to the fact that it included footage of explosions in Northern Ireland, so a choreographed performance was instead shown. During the Freddie Mercury tribute concert in 1992, the surviving members of Queen, along with Bowie and Annie Lennox, filling in for Freddie Mercury, performed the song. The concert was later released on DVD. Mm, A version recorded by Bowie's live band in 1995 was released on the bonus disc that came with some versions of Outside. This live version was also released on the single Hello Space Boy in 96. And on Bowie's Reality Tour DVD and the album A Reality Tour, they include a live version of Under Pressure with uh, recorded in Dublin with Bowie's bassist Gail Ann Dorsey doing Freddie's parts. Uh, she does an amazing she does. job as She's well, doesn't brilliant. she? brilliant, yeah. What a talented yeah. woman, yeah. Uh, I like all this now. This is a bit bonkers. Vanilla mm. Ice sampled the bass line for his 1990 single Ice Ice Baby. Initially, he denied the accusation and then he said he'd modified it but did not originally pay songwriting credits or royalties to Queen or Bowie. A lawsuit resulted in Bowie and all members of Queen receiving songwriting credit for the sample. Vanilla Ice later claimed that he bought the publishing rights to Under Pressure. That sounds highly unlikely, but if he did, he did. Right. Uh, Vanilla Ice also said buying the song made more financial sense than paying out royalties. I wonder how much that cost to buy. I wouldn't have thought that they would sell it. I mean, what is the point in selling the family jewels? I know that he uh, he had money, Vanilla Ice, because he also bought a bike shop, didn't he? He did, that's right. Uh, He didn't have it for long, though, did he? I mean, the money, not the bike shop. Or maybe he had the bike shop for a while. Right. Also, what's intriguing here is a bit of a postscript to all this stuff. So in July 2017, The Guardian reported that Bowie and Queen had recorded several songs during that session uh, that remained unreleased, according to a former roadie of theirs. So a guy called Peter Hintz, he said he was part of uh, Queen's road crew at the time, and he said there was like lots of other material that Queen and Bowie recorded that just never came out, including you know going through stuff like All the Young Dudes and All the Way from Memphis. So it's there in the vault somewhere, according to this guy, but uh, nobody really knows what it is, but he said it's raw, but great. Right, well, it will surface then. Hopefully. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Q is for queer. Okay, so, I mean, I, I grew up as a teenager in the early 70s mm-hmm. and I was a David Bowie fan from the first time I saw him on Liftoff with Aisha, all of that. They weren't very enlightened times. They weren't at all. Neither were the 80s when I, well, you know, I grew up in the 70s too and of course the 80s and they certainly weren't enlightened times. You know, we're, we're covering queer, aren't they? And Bowie coming out as bisexual in an interview in 1972. It was a contentious issue, wasn't it, at that time? It was. And I mean, the bottom line is also that a lot of people really, I mean, for various reasons. If you remember the um, Naked Civil Servant yeah, by John Quentin Hurt. Crisp. Mm. I mean, it's just a really, really beautiful piece of work. Mm. And it's showing this the life of an amazing and truly brave man, you know? And, uh, and, and you do forget, really, the environment that you grew up in at that point in time. I mean, there was an awful lot of racism and the, and homophobia was absolutely rife, yeah. not least even from people who thought that they had to project that macho image regardless of how they actually felt inside. You know, it was a, a little bit like peer group pressure. Yeah. You had to be horrible and be disparaging and call people all manner of names that you would see on the sitcoms yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And I do remember, I mean, I was talking to uh, my Beth about this because uh, we discussed, uh, you know, this particular subject. And I do remember being called a puff and being thumped for liking David Bowie. Right, wow. You know, and so it doesn't even bear thinking about. But, of course, the word now has been reclaimed, and, you know, and, and, and it's a wonderful thing that it's just been it's been retrieved, and, and now it is a word that that can be used, and it's not used in a derogatory way. It's an empowerment. You I was know? just going to say it's an empowerment term. That's exactly it, isn't it? But, you know, as you go back to the dark days of 72, and, well, you know what? January 22nd, 72, to be precise, Melody Maker published an interview conducted with the journalist Michael Watts in which Bowie pronounced, I'm gay and always have been, even when I was David Jones. And the headline of the piece was, Oh, you pretty thing. Uh, Bowie chose the occasion to reveal all to Melody Maker, which was then Britain's biggest selling music weekly. So there was a strategy there too, wasn't there? There was. It was a strategy that his manager wasn't in on. Not (laughs) as we will discover, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so Tony DeFries, his manager at the time, however, was annoyed when he was told that it wouldn't make the front page. So this is the actual interview. This is mm. what he was told. Now, you mentioned this here, Bob. Mm. You're wondering why Tony DeFries, who was a very, very pushy and very, very canny, quite oh, yeah. brilliant in some ways, manager. Mm. And he was pushing for this front cover. But Bowie wasn't a star. No, he wasn't a star. And, you know, I mean, he'd had Space Oddity, but it still hadn't kicked in for him with Ziggy. Yeah. And so he was obviously pushing his luck a little bit and then found out that it wasn't going to be on the front cover, or so they thought. Anyway, a Gem Promotions person, Anya Wilson, recalled that there was a big row a monumental argument with Mick Watts who uh, worked for Melody Maker and the piece almost never happened. Okay, yes, timing was everything. Bowie suddenly became a figurehead of Britain's gay rights movement and also brought attention to his forthcoming, and you have to say sexually ambiguous, Ziggy Stardust album. Uh, Michael Watts said later that this statement uh, of Bowie's changed the lifestyles of a generation and kick-started the LGBT movement. No doubt about it. This is the article. David Bowie rocks swishiest outrage, a self-confessed lover of effeminate clothes, 
Bowie, who has hardly performed in public since his Space Oddity hit of three years ago, is coming back in super style. Uh, it goes on like this. Even though he wasn't wearing silken gowns right out of liberties and his long blonde hair no longer fell wavily past his shoulders, David Bowie was looking yummy. He'd slipped into an elegant pattern type of combat suit, very tight around the legs, with the shirt unbuttoned to reveal a full expanse of a white torso. The trousers were turned up at the calves to allow a better glimpse of a huge pair of red plastic shoes. It continues, David uses words like Varda and Super quite a lot. What's Varda? I don't know. Right, okay. Is it a clockwork orange thing? It might be, might be, might be. Uh, He's gay, he says. The paradox is that he still has what he describes as a good relationship with his wife and his baby son, Zowie. He supposes he's what people call bisexual. David's present image, he writes, is to come on like a swishy queen, a gorgeously effeminate boy. He's as camp as a row of tents. I'm gay, he says, and always have been, even when I was David Jones. But there's a sly jollity about how he says it, a secret smile at the corners of his mouth. I said to him, why aren't you wearing your girl's dress today? Oh dear, he replied, you must understand, it's not a woman's, it's a man's dress. We know this, don't we, Mark? It's a man's dress. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with uh, the brilliant Ezra Furman when he came and did a session for us, and uh, and he wears dresses, you know. Yeah. And when I brought the dress up live on Six Music with him, I could see kind of a look on his face, and then I just came out and I said to him, you know, and of course, it's not a woman's dress, it's a man's dress. And he was going, exactly, that's exactly <laughs> it. It was like, you know, a, a ray of light coming yeah. down from, from the, uh, the gods. But brilliant. it was, of course, David Bowie, who, who just coined all that and, yeah. and, and perfect. Uh, so this is Bowie. The important fact is that I don't have to drag up. I want to go on like this for long after the fashion has finished. I'm just a cosmic job, I suppose. I've always worn my own style of clothes. I change every day. I'm not outrageous. I'm David Bowie. How great is he that? He says he's more of an actor and entertainer than musician. Inside this invincible frame, there might be an invisible man. I'm not particularly taken with life. I'd probably be very good just as an astral spirit. Ah, OK. Uh, Bowie is... Uh, talking. Michael Watts writes, in an office at Gem Music from where his management operates. A tape machine is playing his next album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars, which is about this fictitious pop group. They're releasing it shortly, even though Hunky Dory has only just come out. And of course, you know, we know, don't we, a year later he retired the whole Ziggy character, but he was still playing with gender and the fluidity of all that. That was like a, a trademark of what he was doing throughout the 70s. OK, so let's go to the aftermath now, some years down the line. Bowie's own attitude towards a Melody Maker interview changed over the years. In a 1976 interview with Playboy, Bowie said, It's true, I am bisexual, but I can't deny that I've used the fact very well. I suppose it's the best thing that ever happened to me. By 1983, however, on the release of Let's Dance, Davey called it the biggest mistake I've ever made. That's some turnaround. In 1991, Mick Ronson said, I don't know if Davey was really bisexual. He may have been. Davey likes to shock people. Whether he had genuine feelings about it, I'm not so sure. Perhaps it was just a game. And it goes on. By 1993, Bowie made the claim that he'd always been a closet heterosexual, in his own words, and that his interest in bisexual culture was more a product of the times and situation than his own feelings. And Bowie stated, it wasn't something I was comfortable with at all, but it had to be done. Speaking to The Telegraph in 1996, Bowie said, I was virtually trying anything. I really had a hunger to experience everything that life had to offer, from the opium den to whatever. And I think I had just done about everything that's possible to do, except really dangerous 
dangerous things like being an explorer. <laughs> I can't imagine David Bowie's an explorer. Uh, but anything that Western culture has to offer, I've put myself through most of it. I pushed myself into areas just for experiment and bravado to see what would happen. But in the final analysis, it's not really me. That's interesting, you know, yeah. because I, I had a chat with um, somebody who knew David very well. Yeah. Um, and I was told by this person that, you know, a lot of the drugs and, and, and pushing the drug thing, you know, particularly in like 1974 and 75. Yeah. It, that was kind of almost a, an experiment for Bowie upon himself, using himself as a kind of guinea pig to see how the drugs would affect his psyche and his mind and his outlook. Yeah, and his creativity as well. Well, that whole thing, yeah, absolutely. And so that 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 continues, and that's bore out by that story. By two thousand and two, he was doing an interview with Blender magazine, who asked him, uh, "You once said that saying you were bisexual was the biggest mistake ever made. Uh, do you still believe that?" And Bowie responded, "Interesting." Long pause. I don't think it was a mistake in Europe, but it was a lot tougher in America. I had no problem with people knowing I was bisexual, but I had no inclination to hold any banners or be a representative of any group of people. I knew what I wanted to be, which was a songwriter and a performer, and I felt that bisexuality became my headline over here in America for so long. America is a very puritanical place, and I think it stood in the way of so much I wanted to do. Of course, things had moved on a lot by the time that um, Bowie moved to New York, but he spent a lot of time in America, didn't he? Mm. And so he had he had set his stall out, and that's why we've known before he, in, when he went over for his very first promo visit in 1971. Yeah, he got turfed out of restaurants for being. Uh, well, they said he was a transvestite. He and was all. wearing his Mr. Fish dress, wasn't yeah. he, and all that. And, and all the stories, if you can imagine, like the spiders going through Texas yeah. and, and all of those <laughs> yeah. things. There are those stories, aren't they? Angie Bowie supported the claim of bisexuality and alleged that Bowie and Mick Jagger had an affair. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, biographer Christopher Sanford said, according to Mary Finnegan, with whom Bowie had an affair in 19. 69 anyway, that the singer and his first wife Angie created their bisexual fantasy. Uh, Sanford wrote that Bowie made a positive fetish of repeating the quip that he and his wife had met while um, effing the same bloke. Uh, gay sex was always an anecdotal and laughing matter. That Bowie's actual taste swung the other way is clear from even a partial tally of his affairs with women. Okay, right. Oh, so nobody would ever really truly know, apart no. from David Bowie. Yes, and that's true. as we know, sadly, he's no longer here. In the wake of Bowie's death, it was interesting to see the tributes from the gay, bisexual, and transgender communities who began to share tales of how Bowie had influenced their lives and helped bring queer culture into the mainstream in the 70s. French designer Jean Paul Gaultier recalled one example from Bowie's toy in 1978. I love this. Yeah. He said at the beginning of the show, he appeared as a kind of Marlene Dietrich, uh, but with a captain's jacket and cap it was obvious that it was not Bowie playing a captain but Bowie playing Marlena Dietrich playing a man that's so perceptive that and it's brilliant, brilliant that it's great uh, meanwhile Grayson Perry wrote in The Guardian he said when people are growing up they're generally looking for something in the culture that reflects their subconscious yearnings Bowie certainly did that for my generation in fact he probably did it for two or three and uh, the BBC's Mark Easton wrote in 2016 that Britain was far more tolerant of difference and that gay rights such as same-sex marriage and gender equality would not not have enjoyed the broad support they do today without Bowie's androgynous challenge all those years ago here here I mean, the thing is also that it wasn't just the, the LBGT community who uh, were given confidence by Bowie's stance and, and his honesty or, or the stance that he took, well, how disingenuous or, or, or veiled it was. Yeah. 
I had Echo and the Bunny Men in session recently. And Ian McCulloch, I remember we had Echo and the Bunny Men on uh, the Six Music program oh, a long time ago. And I said to him, you know, you've met David Bowie, massive Bowie fan. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you've met David Bowie. And he went, no, he's met me. I was like, yeah, all right, Mark. Yeah, fine. <laughs> and I reminded him of this, uh, you know, just a, a few weeks ago. And he said, no, I can't keep that up anymore. He said, David's gone now. He said, and so uh, that pretense, I can drop it completely. Oh, he said, did he really? Oh, yeah, because yeah, they've got a song called Somnambulist. Yeah. And it was about uh, Mark himself being a sleepwalker as a kid. And he said he felt almost alien when he was a, a, a youngster, you know, going into his teens. So he'd been through all this sleepwalking stuff, which which unnerved him. And he also said he had out-of-body experiences and things. He just, right. you know, he just was wasn't at one with the world. And he saw David Bowie uh, doing uh, Starman on Top of the Pops, and he just said, I felt comfortable all of a sudden. He wow. said, you know, and it was really quite a breathtaking thing yeah, to hear on, yeah. on the radio and Mark just being very honest and very humble, which he's not known for. No, he's not known for that, and one, one, of my, one of the great bands and we went to see him live, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. But yeah, he said he, he just kind of like gave me the thumbs up to carry on and being what I wanted to be and go my own path, you know. And so all walks of life, all, all manner of people, um, David Bowie affected with his attitude. Oh, a great story that is. Q is for Quatermass and the Pit. Now then, Quatermass and the Pit, or Five Million Years to Earth, as it's known in America, is a 1967 British sci-fi horror film from Hammer, a sequel to the earlier films The Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2. Like its predecessors, it was based on a BBC TV serial, Quatermass and the Pit, written by Nigel Neal. It was directed by Roy Ward Baker, not to be confused with Roy Thomas Baker, producer of Queen Mark. Roy Ward Baker did a lot of the Hammer stuff, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and stars Andrew Keir in the title role as Professor Bernard Quatermass, as opposed to Brian Donlevy, who played the role in the two earlier films. Uh, James McDonald's in it, as is Barbara Shelley, and also Julian Glover as the bad guy. Okay, the storyline centres on the discovery of a mysterious object buried at the site of an extension to the London Underground. Also uncovered nearby are the remains of early human ancestors more than five million years old. Realising that the object is in fact an ancient Martian spacecraft, Quatermass deduces that the aliens have influenced human evolution and the development of human intelligence. So, the spacecraft has an intelligence of its own and once uncovered begins to exert a malign influence, resurrecting Martian memories and instincts buried deep within the human psyche. Nigel Neal wrote the first draft of the screenplay in 1961, but problems in attracting interest from American co-financiers meant the film didn't go into production until 1967. But what's all this got to do with David Bowie, Bob? Right then, let's get to it. When the TV series was first broadcast on the BBC in December 1958, Bowie loved it so much that he created his own version of the programme's music on stage with the lower third by the mid-60s. He and the band used to include the Quatermass theme, which was Mars, the bringer of war by Holst, in their set list. In fact, they would usually close the set with it. We got louder as we progressed, said guitarist Dennis Taylor. Mars had lots of feedback, fantastic and very noisy. Great. That was a great interview that Bowie did with Vanity Fair in 2003, where he just went through all his favourite records, all his formative stuff. Right. All right, and he talked about uh, various things. Amongst them, 1960s La Sacre du Printemps by Igor Stravinsky. Uh, and Bowie said, In the late 50s, Woolworths produced a cheap series of classical albums on their Music for Pleasure label. I spotted this one in the racks and was so taken with the photo of the mountain, which was Ayers Rock in Australia, that resistance was impossible. He continued, With help from the liner notes, which I found incredibly illuminating, I could almost construct my own imagined dance to this fantastic piece of music. Earlier in my then short life, I had bought Gustav Holst's The Planet Suites. Motivated by watching a tremendous sci-fi series on BBC television called Equator Mass Experiment, 
from behind the sofa when my parents thought I'd gone to bed. After each episode, I would tiptoe back to my bedroom, rigid with fear. So powerful did the action seem to me. The title music was Mars, the bringer of war, so I already knew that classical music wasn't boring. That's great, hiding behind the sofa, like I used to do with Doctor Who. But it's intriguing, isn't it, this? I know this might be like a small episode in Bowie's life, but is this where the start of that whole um, aliens Martian idea came from? Is this a path to Ziggy, perhaps? It obviously uh, tickled his fancy one way or the other, didn't it? The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, recorded and edited by Howard Nock, with social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Michael Mick Ronson, also known as Rono. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.